0: Genesis begins with the world as God intends it, a world of order, harmony, and beauty, a world of abundance and provision, a place where He will make His home. Then, everything falls apart. Evil infiltrates creation. Humanity rebels against its Creator. And so the scene is set for the major conflict of the Bible. How will God reclaim what is His, How will He bless the world so it can flourish again? Genesis is the beginning of the answer. The book opens, appropriately enough, with a prologue depicting the origins of the world. But this account focuses more on the who and why of creation than the how. According to Genesis, God makes everything there is, not from a distance. His Spirit hovers close, just above the watery depths. With each successive day of creation, its formless, empty state gives way to order and purpose. When God rests on the seventh day, He reveals the true purpose of creation. In the ancient world, deities rested in temples, but God is no ordinary deity, and this is no ordinary creation story. The earth is God's temple. He intends to dwell with us forever. These plans are disrupted when the first humans rebel against God's rule. From here, Genesis moves through a series of accounts, or family histories, detailing the exploits of early humanity, and one family in particular. The first four accounts show the world spiraling out of control. With each new generation, the human race falls deeper into a cycle of violence, chaos, and injustice until finally God has had enough. He will wash the world clean in a great flood. One family is spared, Noah and his children. God makes a covenant, a sacred treaty or oath, with Noah, promising never again to destroy creation. God begins to fight back against the power of evil. The final seven accounts of Genesis detail God's relationship not with the world as a whole, but with one family in particular. God makes a second covenant, this time with one of Noah's descendants, Abraham. God says He will bless the entire world through Abraham's descendants. Except Abraham doesn't have any descendants until Isaac the miracle baby is born, and God renews His covenant, promising to bless Isaac's family for Abraham's sake. And ultimately, for the sake of the world.
1: We're going to be in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 to start. In the spirit of the season of fall and season of transitions, we just wanted to acknowledge this is also a good opportunity to say if you didn't read your news and notes this week, you missed out. So take a look at that, our weekly newsletter. But one of the announcements in there was that we said farewell to Lacey Skoglund on Friday. And first of all, Lacey, we thank you for your service and your dedication for almost three years with restoration. And we wish you the best in your new endeavors. And second of all, uh, we do just want to pray for the Skoglund family. Uh, so, God, we thank you for Lacey, for uh, her husband Andrew, for their children. Elliot, Jillian, and Oliver. And God, we pray that you would bless them in this next season. God, we pray for what's next. We pray that you'd give them discernment on if they're going to remain with our restoration family or if they're going to find a new church home. And we just open ourselves up and op- ask you to open them up to the guiding of your spirit to lead them to where you would bring them to a place of blessing and abundance and peace um, And we thank you for the ways in which you've blessed us through Lacey's gifts. Uh, We also acknowledge, God, that uh, those leaves voids. And we ask for your spirit and your discernment in the midst of that. And strength for the road ahead in Jesus' name. Amen. So stay tuned for your news and notes this week to uh, find out what our interim plan is for communication and administration. We're excited about that. We'll let you know that in the weeks to come. So, uh, to start us off in our reading of this Immerse book as we start into the book of Genesis, I want you to take a look at this picture that's on the screen. You'll see uh, a little, probably... I don't know, I'm going to say maybe, maybe two, two years old, what do you think? Or possibly three, you know, there are some gaps in her teeth, you'll notice that. Uh, her eyes are sure glittery, her, her pigtails, I don't know if I've seen curlier hair, in those pigtails. And as you look at the picture, you want to make observations about that. If you're in a watch party right now, you can shout them out to the people in the room and see what you see on that picture, and then why you see what you see. How about this picture? This next picture is a rather cute one that I personally enjoy. Uh, You know, we've got two little puppies here. Uh, We're not sure what's going on in the picture, but obviously they're not looking at the same thing at the same time. They look like they might be pets, because you'll see there's a little dog leash thing in the corner, Uh, but you know, they're expectant for something. Uh, But again, take a look and see what you see. How about this picture? All right, here we have Uh, A young girl, we're hoping she's probably with her dad. Uh, We're not sure, but maybe they have the same eyes. And where might they be? Are they at a rodeo? Are they at uh, a county fair? There's a metal pole that they're leaning against. He's got a cowboy hat on. And so you can start to wonder about the setting that these people are in and the relationships they have. This is what we do with pictures. This is what we do with images, what we do with art. We, we ask questions about it and we try to discern what is there. How about this picture? First of all, you can see that it's at a lake, if you see in the background. They're all wearing matching shirts. Maybe they're one family and it's an adopt walk. Shirt. Maybe one person in that family or more than one is adopted. We're not sure. But again, you can take a look at those pictures and the features in the pictures. You can ask questions about that and then make some observations. And then how about this one? Uh, It's not coming through super well on our screen, but it looks like it's, again, a family standing together and Maybe they're at a stadium. They're probably at a stadium based on what I see in the background. Uh, Maybe the dad is military. He's coming home from the military. Or maybe he's just having a hard time accepting that his hairline is receding. And so he just went for the whole thing and took it off. But it actually looks like there's some exuberance in their faces. They're happy to be together in this spot. And again, we, we ask questions. But the reality is if... You have no idea who these people are, then it's pretty hard to know the significance of the photo and to stay motivated at continuing to look at the photo. Now, the reason that I gave you five or six pictures like this is because this is how many of us look at the Bible, especially the Old Testament, as hundreds and hundreds of pictures or stories filled with um, events that seem obscure or lists of names that we don't really know and then we can and if we're honest we just read like a random story at a time and we might finish reading it and say oh that's really cool or that's interesting or that's confusing or even that's disturbing and and then stop and probably go find a part where jesus is in because those are more fun to read anyway and I just want to acknowledge why it makes the Bible difficult to read. It's a really old book from another time, another culture, talking about another people in another language, and we can, we can start to say, oh, it's so far removed that it's just too hard. However, I want you to imagine that you find one of these books, you know, you find this Bible or you find this Immerse book on the street. Maybe it's on a a park bench and someone leaves it there and you have no, no background in it and you just start to read it. I think if you just started to read it as you would start to read a book, you would see that these stories are actually part of a larger story. Kind of like all of the pictures that I just showed you are actually part of a larger picture. And it can just look like this random collection of stories until we zoom all the way out and we see that this picture is actually part of a larger picture that's something more beautiful altogether. This photo mosaic is a perfect illustration of what the Bible is and does as well. The whole book, but especially the Old Testament, and even more, these first five books of the Old Testament actually create one big story where God is is speaking and telling something. and And when we zoom out, we can see that the author has carefully arranged all of these little stories to tell that big story. And so, I want to acknowledge that because many of us try to read the Bible and we're not quite sure how. And then and then we ask the Bible questions that it was actually never trying to answer. Like in Genesis 1, did God really create the earth in seven days or did it evolve in some way and how old is it did god actually become a physical being with physical hands to mold the first man out of the dirt like that is not the questions the bible was trying to answer but instead he is trying to answer or it is trying to answer really relevant big questions like who are we as humanity and and where are we and what's wrong and what's the remedy to what's wrong and i think those questions have a special relevance to us especially in the days that are difficult in the days we live in and so i want to just look at those questions for a little bit of time this morning and see what we can discover about what God might be up to in these seemingly random stories. So, Genesis 1-1. Where are we? According to Genesis 1, we get this kind of vague phrase that says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, if we could read and understand Hebrew, we'd actually read it like this. In beginnings, God created the heavens and the earth. Or, in a beginning, God created what we see above us, and what we see around us. It's actually this unspecified period of time before. Kind of like when you read a fairy tale and it says, once upon a time. Or if you're a Star Wars fan, you'll hear that phrase, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. It's not really important how much time has happened before this. What is important is that whatever that time was, the Lord God already existed. And He's the one who created everything we see around us and above us. So that's where we are. We're not just on this earth in 2020. We didn't just evolve out of randomness. Life didn't have to exist, and it does. Life is a gift, according to Genesis 1. Life was created by this loving and creative God who creates duck-billed platypuses and narwhals. I mean, crazy, crazy creatures. And then he brought light and order out of darkness and chaos. In fact, everything was created with intention and purpose. And you'll catch... In Genesis 1-1, that seven times, God looked at what he saw, and he called it good. Seven is that complete number that says God looked over everything completely and said it was good. So that's where we are. Now, who are we? Well, again, according to Genesis 1 and 2, we're creatures. We are created beings, in fact, it says in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. So first of all, somehow God is an us, not just a him or a her, an us. Christians would say he's Father, Son, and Spirit. That's the us. And, and us makes humans like us, in His image, and they will reign over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and the livestock and all the wild animals on the earth and all the small animals that scurry on the ground, just in case we wanted to make sure God tries to cover everything in that moment. And then there's like a little poem in there. Maybe in your Bible it's even indented to show that poetry. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then, not only God does that, he blesses them. And he says, be fruitful and multiply. Remember those phrases. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. reign over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. So again, We get this repetition of what God intends and then what God says, and then God does that. So two things that I see in the midst of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is, one, humans are incredibly special beings. They are made in God's image. Now, in the Hebrew, the word image is this word, selim. It's the word that gets translated for statue or icon or image, Or idol. Now, later in the story, in Exodus, we're going to find out that humans are forbidden to make an idol or a selim of God. But God can make a selim of himself in us. See, humans are little statues. They're little representatives of this creative, awesome, gracious being. That's who we are. God's image isn't just found in one individual person alone or one gender alone. God's image is found in both maleness and femaleness, and God's image is found in community, in us, which, again, I think is pretty amazing. So, Part of what it means to be made in God's image is not just this maleness and femaleness or usness. It's this idea to be fruitful and multiply, to increase and govern the world. In Genesis 2, we see a little more detail about what it means to reign over creation and be made in God's image. First, God plants a garden in Genesis 2.8. And he places the man there. He forms the man out of dirt that's from the earth. And then he breathes into the man his divine breath, his ruach. So humans are made of earth, of dirt, and of spirit, of God. In fact, humans actually live at the intersection of humanity, of physical and divinity, spiritual. We are in that intersection point And then God gives us this work to tend and watch over the garden, to cultivate and care for it. So God is like this gardener who cultivates and cares for us. And then he puts us in the garden to rule and subdue the earth, but not by conquering, by cultivating. See, God wants us to do what he did, to see the good things in us, to bring them out, to burst forth more life in the midst of that. That is what it means to govern. That's also what it means for God to call something good, tov in the Hebrew. And up to this point in the story, God has been the only one to evaluate something or decide if something is good or if it's evil. That's about to change. So what goes wrong in the story? Well, in Genesis 2, it says, in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, that the Lord God warned the man, you may eat freely from the fruit of every tree in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For if you eat of that fruit, you are sure to die. That tree, according to Genesis 2, was in the middle of the garden. So there's one boundary And that boundary is in the middle. So kids, teenagers, so often you hear that your boundaries are over on the edges and don't push the boundaries. And yet in the creation story, the boundary is in the middle. And there's just one. There is unlimited potential. There's unlimited permission. Just one boundary. So humans have all of this freedom to create, to garden, to paint, to build stuff, to name animals, make babies. All of these things were good, except for one thing, this choice to take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. See, up to this point in the story, again, God has been the one to define what is good, But if we are gonna be in genuine relationship, true like community and love with God, both parties have to choose each other. We can't be forced to love someone. We can't be forced to love God. So God is filled with this dignity and respect and unconditional love and he gives us the choice, as humans, to trust God and live under his definition of what is good and what is evil or to take for ourselves that definition and to decide in our own life what is good and what is evil. And we know what they chose, right? We see in the story what they chose. In Genesis 3-5, there's this serpent, that serpent doesn't come up at all in the rest of these five books, but shows up in this story as this crafty, mysterious creature and says, If you take that fruit, God knows your eyes will be opened and as soon as you eat it, you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Which should cause the reader to say, wait, 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 wait. Aren't you already like God? Didn't he already create you in his image? Create you with love and kindness and and goodness to govern all the animals? Can't you have dominion? Over the creature called the serpent. But again, they were caught in this temptation to decide for themselves what is good and what is evil. And they give in to that deception. Now, up until this point in the story, big zoomed out picture, heavens, earth, creation, zoom in, garden, care, choice, zoomed in further, serpent, woman, man, snake, conversation. Now it's going to zoom out, and it's not only going to go slow, it's going to speed up. And we're going to get these little snapshots, these highlights, or more appropriately lowlights, to show examples of what it means when humans choose to define for themselves what is good and what is evil. And it's, it's like getting punched in a boxing match round after round. First, it's like little Pixar movie shorts. First, Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit, which was a sin. But then the next scene, one of their sons actually murders one of the other sons and, and we're supposed to go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Now, murder is wrong and stealing the fruit is wrong too. But the writer wants us to see that, that murder is actually more evil than just stealing the fruit. And then the, the next scene that comes up is about one of the murderer's descendants. His name is Lamech. He's the first person in the story of God to take more than one wife. That would be kind of selfish as well. But then he brags about killing people that insult him. Now, murder is evil, but murdering and then bragging about it is more evil. In fact, in just a couple chapters, all of a sudden God looks over in Genesis 6:5. God looks over all of creation and sees the extent of human wickedness. And that he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil evil in just a couple chapters humanity has gone from like choosing for themselves what is good and what is evil to only choosing evil and the lord was sorry that he had made them humans and put them on the earth it broke his heart so god sends this flood to start over Not because he was angry, not because he wanted to wipe out the humans, but because it broke his heart. And yet, there's this one person, ten generations after Adam, named Noah. And Noah is righteous. He is right with God, and he does everything God says. God tells him to build this ark, this this boat that will save the people and, and the animals, And not the unicorns. I guess they didn't make it. There's a poem about it. Just seeing if you're paying attention. But he gets off the ark that he builds and he builds an altar to God. That's a good thing. After he builds the altar, he plants a vineyard. That could be a good thing. Except then he makes wine and then he gets drunk. And then he gets so drunk he ends up naked in his tent That's not a good thing. And then one of his sons comes in, sees him, and we don't get much details of the story, but that's not a good thing. And so the father curses the son. And if we can make it through Genesis 9 and 10, which are long lists of names, we have to be wondering, like, where is this going? God told Noah... Because God blessed Noah in the restart of the earth to again multiply and fill the earth. To spread out, create, bring good things out of the world again. Except... They don't want to spread out. In Genesis 11, we find out they want to stay together. They want to build a city. They want to use their technology to make a name for themselves, to reach for the heavens, and to not spread out. To do exactly the opposite of what God asked them to do and blessed them to do. It wasn't like trying to rein them in. It was trying to give them permission. And in Genesis 11, we get this story of the Tower of Babel where the people have a new technology, they wanna, they make bricks. Bricks are much more efficient than stone, you can build things much faster, much taller. It's actually quite a story for us in the 21st century. Do we use our new technology filled with selfish and evil hearts to bring good in the world or to bring destruction? And so God sees this and says, the people are united. They all speak the same language in verses five and six of Genesis 11. After this, nothing they do will be impossible for them. So come, let's come down and confuse their languages and then they won't be able to understand each other. And in that way, from that point of confusion, the Lord scatters them all over the world and they stop building the city. Again, it's a story of judgment, but I want you to also hear, it's a story of compassion. In fact, over and over in the story, each one of these little episodes have God's judgment, but they also have God's compassion. And at this point in the story, Genesis 3 to Genesis 11, our head should be spinning with all of these little episodes. We have to be wondering, will it get any better Could it get any worse? Is there a solution? And then we get another long list of names. And coincidentally, or not so much, it's 10 generations from Noah to a guy named Abram, who we will know as Abraham. And God spoke to Abraham in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Now, God has spoken to people before, So at that point in the story, we might not be thinking like, okay, God spoke to Adam and Eve, God spoke to Cain, God spoke to Noah, except after he spoke to each of them and they did something evil and they messed up, we don't really hear about them again. But God speaks to Abram or Abram, he does something faithful, then he does something evil, then he does something faithful, then he does something evil, then he does something faithful, then he does something evil. And, and we continue to hear about this guy. In fact, for 38 chapters, from Genesis 12 to Genesis 50, 39 I guess, we will continue to hear about Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob and his son Joseph. We get four generations and that completes the book of Genesis, and this makes no sense unless the book and the story is somehow connected to what happened in the first 11 chapters and what's gone wrong with the whole world. It's like this one guy is somehow connected to the fate of the whole world. It would be like watching Star Wars Episode One, like The Phantom Menace, and not having seen the original trilogy, episodes four through six, you know, the good ones, you wouldn't be wondering why Jar Jar Binks is in the story. Maybe you would. But you'd be wondering why they're spending so much time on this 10-year-old kid named Anakin, who just doesn't bring a lot to episode one. And yet, millions of people Have watched, or maybe more appropriately, endured the first three episodes because they all wanted to know how this 10 year old kid Anakin becomes dun 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 spoiler alert, mute me if you need to, Darth Vader. That's kind of like what the reader should be wondering who is this guy and what is God doing? Well, here's what God said. God said, leave your native country, Abram, or Abram, leave your relatives and your father's family, and go to the land that I will cause you to see or that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous. I will make a name for yourself. Remember that from Genesis 11? And I will bless you, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all of the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. Now, look at the words in Genesis 12. Just by simple repetition, we have to see what God is talking about. Five times he uses the word bless or blessing. Now, God blessed Adam and Eve in chapter one. He blessed Noah in chapter nine, but he never actually used the word bless or blessing in those conversations. Instead, and in this point, God actually uses the word five times. So, what is God doing? Why Abram? What has he done to earn this kind of status? Abraham has just shown up as the story as the son of someone else just a guy who took his family out of a place called Ur where they worshiped moon gods and went to this place called Haran, which is like halfway to the promised land, except God didn't call Abraham's father to go to the promised land. So they're sitting in this little halfway point and that's where God tells Abraham to go to the land he'll show him. But Abraham has done nothing to deserve this. We don't even know if Abraham worships this God who's been so central to the story yet. It's like God randomly picked someone to say, I'm going to make your name great, and I'm going to offer you protection and provision and a promise to have many children, except you're super old and you don't have any children. Just because. Just because I want to bless the whole world. That's the only thing I can see that, that God is actually saying, God wants to share this blessing, not just with Abraham or Abraham's family, but to the whole world. Now think about what all of the nations of the world have been doing in their relationship with God so far in the story. They have been enemies of God. They have been rebelling against God. So what does God want to do with his enemies? He wants to bless them. That should sound familiar if you read more of the story of the Bible. You should remember, hey wait, didn't Jesus say to not just love our friends, but love our enemies? Yes, that's who God is. God is going to restore his blessing to the whole world. That's God's plan. And he's going to use random ordinary, imperfect people to partner with. Like Abraham, if you did all of your reading, you're like, whoa, this guy is kind of messed up. Yep, yep, telling kings that he's, his wife is really his sister and that they can, weird stuff. But this blessing isn't just the link to the book of Genesis. It's actually the link to the whole story. The whole Bible is connected to this blessing that ultimately gets fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, you're supposed to read like 29 or 30 chapters of the Bible for our immerse reading this week. But if you only read the first 12, I want you to think about who about what you would know about this God of the Bible. First of all, not only would you know that he's creative and good, at least good at making stuff, you'd also know God's definition of good and evil because God continually reinforces what's good and then judges what is evil. He does so with compassion, but he does that. You'd know that this God is a God full of grace, That every time anger is the proper emotion, he never shows rage. Instead, he shows grief and sorrow and remorse and patience. And you'd know that this God doesn't just love special or important people. He loves the nobodies and the insignificant ones and and all people and he's working to bring all of them back into relationship with him. It's like in God's abundant grace, he chooses a nobody to make into a somebody to reverse this curse and redeem the world. See, that's what you and I get to be invited into. We get to be part of his plan, just like Abraham was invited to be part of his plan. And it's not a conditional thing. It's a gift. In Romans 6, 23, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, a wage is something we get when we perform a job. We do this job. We earn this money. But a gift is simply given. We don't do anything to deserve it. And all through the story, what humans, have, what humans have earned is death and separation from God. And yet, over and over, even in these early chapters of Genesis, what I want you to see is God continues to give a gift. He continues to give them chances and life, even though they don't deserve it. Ultimately, This blessing from Abraham is fulfilled in Jesus and that's why the writer of Romans is able to say, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ. No matter what you've done, who you are, or where you've been, God offers that gift to you. How might you respond to that? I mean, the only thing I can figure out, because Abraham and his family were far from perfect. We'll talk more about that next week. But God continued to be faithful, and the only thing Abraham that he seemed to do is faithfully respond to God's faithfulness. So where might you need to respond to God's faithfulness in your life this week? Is it with your work? Have you been white-knuckling it through this season, just hoping to endure and you actually need to release and ask God to empower you and to live through you and to bring peace and blessing, whatever that looks like in this season? Is it in your family? Have you been short or impatient with the people you're supposed to love the most and God is inviting you to respond with the, the faithfulness and gentleness that he offers us? Is it ultimately this gift that is found in Jesus Christ, that you know you can't do it on your own, that you really do deserve death and separation, just like I do. And yet, God offers this gift and we can respond with 100% of our heart and mind and soul. Where is God inviting you to faithfully respond today? Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for your story and for the big story that it is in our lives. Forgive us for when we read for moral examples of trying to do better than they did or to try and get the principle and then to live it on our own. God, instead, may we see it for what it is, the story of graciousness and the gift that you continually offer of yourself and ultimately of your son. God, would you help us in this case to be like Abraham and to respond to your faithfulness? God, we know that Abraham didn't always respond well to your faithfulness. And and so we know that 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 is not the answer to just put it all in ourselves. But can we look at what you do? to the faithfulness that you bring, to the abundance of grace, even in your judgment that you bring. And God, can we respond to that? Like Abraham, can we go where you are leading us? To bring goodness, to bring peace, to bring life. And God, ultimately, to receive goodness and peace and life. For we need to receive that gift of eternal life that is ultimately found in your son Jesus. Again, thank you for being the gracious giver, God. Lead us now. Amen.